0: So we're going to pick up right where we left off. And just to refresh everybody's memory, we're at a grand ball now. This ball's been going on for a very, very long time. And right now, everybody's really drunk. (laughs) Chief amongst the drunkards is King Achashverosh. He's a very unusual fellow. Some thought he was a genius. Some thought he was a lunatic or a fool. And maybe he was all of the above. And Achashverosh, in his drunken stupor, began to boast about his wife's beauty. And the other courtiers said, Ah, eh, she's not that great. She just wears fancy clothes. And she has a good hairstylist. And she gets good makeup done. It's not, it's not really that. He says, No, no, no. She's the real deal. I'm telling you. Anyway, this ridiculous argument amongst drunk, drunk men in a locker room, kind of, Ends up (laughs) with, yeah, it sounds familiar. Ends up with Achashverosh sending a demand to his wife. Show up, he said. Show everybody your beauty, but leave your clothes outside. Vashti is not impressed. And the Gemara goes in talks to this business of Vashti getting her own just desserts. Vashti, this was on a Shabbat. And Vashti was infamous for her anti-Semitism. She really hated Jewish people. She was a descendant of Nebuchadnezzar, one of the great anti Semites of all time. And then she is, according to some opinions, even a daughter of Nebuchadnezzar, according to most opinions, a granddaughter of Nebuchadnezzar, or possibly a great granddaughter, because we have a dispute amongst the sages if Evil Merodach and Belshazzar are father and son or two brothers. So after Nebuchadnezzar's rule comes to an end, evil man, Evil Merodach, rules. And after Evil Merodach comes Belshazzar. Belshazzar is deposed or kind of assassinated by Darius I, the king of Media, Parasumodai. And according to some opinions, Belshazzar is the son of Evel Merodach. And Vashti is his daughter, which makes Vashti a great-granddaughter of one of the great anti-Semites of all time. And she hates the Jewish people. According to some opinions, Evil Merodach and Belshazzar are actually siblings or brothers, which makes Vashti a granddaughter. And then there was even a minority opinion that Vashti was the younger sister of Evil Morodach and Belshazzar. At any rate, she's got hatred for our people coursing in her veins. And what she used to do, she knew the Jewish people wanted to keep Shabbat, and she would have Jewish maidservants show up. She would force them. She was the queen. She would force them to show up on Shabbat. She would strip them naked to demean them. And then she would give them menial jobs to do. So the Gemara said, Hashem keeps score. And meided meided in, in the measure that one uses for others, God uses for them. And so Vashti now herself is commanded by the king, her wonderful husband, to show up in the nude. Vashti is not impressed. So we're going to pick up the Gemara, Dafyud Beyz Amut base page 12 side 2 yeah, about let's see one two three four five six that uh 10 or 12 lines down from the top and that's a little more than that actually 12B1 and it's just with the with a with a in the original i'm not sure the english will probably be 12b2 it's just where the lines begin to widen Just above where the lines begin to widen. If you look in the original Gemara, in the Artscore version that you're using, it's probably twelve B two. I'm guessing. So the Gemara goes on to say that after Achashverosh invited Vashti for a little uh, show and tell to honor the party, you know, to kind of cheer everybody up. Says the Gemara, Vatimoyin Hamalka Vashti. Queen Vashti refused. So the Gemara says, Queen Vashti refused. Why did Queen Vashti refuse? Migdi, let us see here. Pritsosa Havoi, she was an exceptionally licentious person. As the Gemara told us earlier, the Omar Mar that the Master taught, Shnehem Ledvar Avera Both Achashverosh and his wonderful wife Vashti set up the ball in such a way that would be most conducive to immorality and sin. That's the way the ball was set up. They made sure there was a separate woman's ball but it wasn't really separate. It was like kind of right in the middle of the men's ball and what Vachashverosh and Vashti encouraged was licentious behavior. Licentious behavior, immodesty, immorality. This was, uh, this was the currency of their kingdom. This was the kind of society they lived in. So why would Vashti be opposed to that? I mean, this, this is right up Vashti's alley, so to speak. And if Kavno, and if they both were highly immoral, licentious, immodest individuals, <laughs> Vashti was a perfect playgirl. What's the problem? She didn't have a problem prancing around like that. So the Gemara says, You're right, Vashti didn't. And the Gemara says, Well, if so, my time, why didn't she come? What would she care to come? She, says, she was extremely immodest. So the Gemara says, now we'll tell you the rest of the story. Here's why Vashti didn't come. Omar Rabbi Barchanina. Rabbi Yossi Barchanina taught. "Malamed the very fact that she did not come, the very fact that she refused to show up, this teaches us, Sheporcha Bo that she suffered an outbreak of skin discoloration. So she wasn't looking as hot. And as such, she didn't want to show up and be seen in a way which would be a disgrace and a shame for her. Now Rashi says something very interesting. You take a look at Rashi, he says, Tsaras, incidentally, is a paranormal condition that is only seen by the eye but not actually representative of every, any real contagion. And there's no texture or substance or depth to it. It's only on the surface. It just looks. It's like virtual. And all the Rishonim tell us that this is a paranormal reality, like a miraculous thing, that hasn't existed for two millennia plus since the time of the Beta HaMikdash. And we don't really have this today. And usually it's something that Jewish people were stricken with, although it was not an exclusively Jewish malady. Sometimes it could also strike non-Jewish people as well. Usually, tzoras is seen as a punishment for specific sins. Hasidus explains that the reason we don't have issues with tzoras today is tzoras is indicative that this person suffers nothing but skin-deep issues. In other words, they're perfect. Everything is the way it should be. Well, on the surface, the surface requires a little bit of engineering. It's only, so to speak, the outer orbit. In today's day and age, it's quite the contrary. Our society is one that prides itself on political correctness, on saying the right things, on looking the right way, but actually people are entirely rotten on the inside. So Tsaras would not be an effective way of making us any better today. Tsaras does not reflect the values or lack thereof of today's day and age, and it hasn't for a very, very long time. So whether Tsaras here actually refers to that paranormal miraculous condition or whether Tsaras here refers to a psoriasis of sorts or some kind of, of, of rash, I don't know. First, one don't really talk about that. It, could, it can go either way. Bottom line is Tsaras can be used in different, in different uh, uh, contexts, so to speak. At any rate, the point was that Vashti had this outbreak of skin discoloration. And how do we know that? So Rashi quotes a Talmud Yerushalmi. And I should mention to you that the Ma'aratz Chayis, some a very, very important Hungarian Talmudist, he says, we don't have this Yerushalmi. In the Jerusalem Talmud that we have today, this, this um, idea does not show up. Both Rashi and Tosfos quote it. But Ma'aratz Chayis says that there are a number of quotations from the Jerusalem Talmud, which the printed version that we have doesn't contain. But in the times of Rashi, the manuscripts they had, for whatever reason, this manuscript got lost. So in Yerushalmi, it says that the words that are used to describe Ahasuerus' remembering Vashti are, nigzar aleha, what was decreed against her, the decree that was leveled against her, which is a rather odd word to use, because there wasn't really a decree against Rashi, against Vashti, pardon me. There was a Vashti who publicly shamed the king, as we're soon going to find out. Like she, she did everything she could to enrage her husband, and he flew off the handle. He went nuts because he was a behemoth, because he was a beast. I'm not defending him, but the, the 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 thing is, it was not like a decree. It wasn't like this plot against Vashti had a deposer. Faris didn't really want to get rid of her. He loved her. He was very depressed after after he killed her. Sounds like Henry VIII or or something like that. It wasn't a, It it wasn't a decree per se, but it, that's the word that's used. Ah, so the Yushalmi says. There's a story that's told in our scripture, in the book of Chronicles, about a man whose name was Uzziah. And this fellow Uzziah, he had an issue. He was a king, and he should have been satisfied with monarchy and royalty, but he wanted priesthood also. He wanted to have it all. He's not the first one. So many people who coveted and lusted for the priesthood. In fact, the descendants of the Kohanim, who defended our honor, and battled for our integrity and brought us the miracle of Hanukkah, who are commonly known as Hashmonaim, which is a name that's used to describe illustrious Kohanim, particular Kohanic families, the Chashmonoim, unfortunately, their descendants did not remain loyal to Torah and to mitzvahs, and in the end, all of the Chashmonaim were massacred. There are no descendants left from the Hasmonean family, not one. There was one girl, and she committed suicide after seeing her whole family murdered by Herod, who was not even a Jew, a non-Jewish king who usurped the throne. So what happened was that the Hasmonean family had the high priesthood amongst their ranks. And then after the battles of Hanukkah, they kind of liked being in charge. So they kept the monarchy under their influence. Not only their influence, but they actually, they were the monarchs. And because, they, because of this, because they did not respect the Torah's command to establish a house of royalty, which is from David and HaMelech, that's what they were supposed to have done. And this was the first time we had the possibility, because when we came back to the land of Israel, we were uh, essentially a, a vassal state. We didn't have real self-determination. Uh, we didn't have real independence. We were allowed to build a second Beit HaMegdash because the king of Persia said you could build a second Beit HaMegdash. And in the second Beit Hamikdash, there were numerous things which reflected Persian dominion, because we were not independent. It was only after the Persian Empire falls, which is then replaced by the Greek Empire, that was hammered together by a young prince from Macedonia, whose name was Alexander. And Alexander the Great, before he was 36 years old, conquered most of what we call the civilized world, most of the Western world, the entire Mediterranean entire Iberian area was all under, from Spain all the way to Algeria and everything, and huge swaths of Syria and Iraq and Iran, all the way up to the north to Kazakhstan. All of this was under the sway of Alexander the Great. And the Jewish people fell under. That, That influenced them. And then what happened was Alexander died and his generals began to fight and his empire fractured in two the North African contingent known as the Potolimic, And then there was the Seleucids who dominated the area in which Israel fell under its sway. So again, we were not independent. There wasn't a question of establishing a royal house of David, we were independent. Ah, but then several decades later, the Chashmonoyim are victorious and we were independent. And what should we have done? The Kohanim should have stepped aside. They should have remained in the of Migdash. They should have involved themselves in spiritual leadership. And they should have established a political, a Torah political leadership, which would be a king, king from the house of David. And there were people like this. But the lust for power was too strong. And unfortunately, they were intoxicated by it. And that's why the Hasmoneans have a bitter end. But going back to the story of Uzziah, Uzziah lusted the priesthood. and He was the king and he could do whatever he wanted. And so he tried to force himself into the basin of Megdish. What happened to him? God struck him very quickly, much more swiftly than usually happens. Uziah was stricken with tsaras. Suddenly his forehead exploded in a, in a in a not exploded, but had an eruption of tsaras all across his forehead. And the words that I use to describe is by Yeshev, base. Hachafsis mitsoira, he had to go and live in the house of the Mitzorah because Sashem, because he was decreed out of or cut out of the house of God. Ah. What happened to Uzziah? Uziah was stricken with Saras. There was a real Tsaras. So we understand Afkan Saras. Even though we, we don't know. Remember, the scripture will speak to us very cryptically. You going have to analyze the scripture and try to look at every word carefully. So why was, why was one word used or the other word used? And if you see a terminology that seems to be out of sorts, oftentimes it's a red flag that says, look deeper, investigate, and you'll hear the rest of the story. And the Megillah is a book of scripture. It's not any different. So you have to look deeper. And here it says, es nigzar, Allah, we use the word nigzar. The word nigzar is not the word that would aptly describe the predicament of Vashti. And so Rashi quoting the Yerushalmi and Tesfus also says the same thing. He sa- says, mm-hmm. And it says about Uzziah, As Uziah had a skin discoloration, which then was certainly the paranormal condition of Tzaras, so too whether Vashti had the paranormal spiritual discoloration or whether it was actually contagium, and she broke out into an ugly rash. But suddenly she broke out in a rash and she said, I'm not going to prance around with a rash, looking ugly? Forget about it. So what happened? Incidentally, the Gemara adds another little opinion. In the Mishnah we learned, and and you'll see this in the Gemara is in brackets here. According to some opinions, it seems that there was a time when these brackets were struck from the original text by the censor, but they were preserved orally, and then when we could print our own Gemara, we put it back inside. That's why it's in square brackets mean it's supposed to be added in. Ba Gavriel that the angel, the archangel Gabriel came, Vasala Zanov, and he slapped her on a tail. So now Vashti had a tail. Oh, she did not want to show up with a tail. That was gonna look really weird. It couldn't it couldn't that couldn't work. So Rashi doesn't say anything, and I have to tell you that not everybody agrees that it was actually a tail. Now was obvious that it was the Rashba says it was going to be Gavriel, because Malach Michael is the angel of kindness. He's chesed. Malach Gavriel is the angel of gvura, or discipline and punishment. Vashti is getting disciplined, punished now. If an angel is going to be sent, which angels are going to be? Gavriel. So Gavriel slaps on the tail. Okay. As I said, not everybody exactly is so certain about this being a tail. Here's, what, here's what's... Um, Here's the way the Ben Yuhiada explains it. He says as following. He says, pardon me, the Rosh says this actually. You know, in Rosh Hashanah, it's, it's customary to eat the head, like the head of a fish. And what do we say when we eat the head of a fish? We say, we should be like a head and not a tail. So we have a Mishnah that talks about a person should be, Rosh should rather be a Zon of La la'aroyas than a Rosh l'shoala. better to be the tail in the lion pack than be the head of the foxes. In other words, like heads and tails are uh, uh, intimation of something which is extraordinarily successful or prominent or good. And the tail, it's not a compliment. It's not even a caboose. It means like the f- finish last. No. The tail end. It's not. So so therefore, this is a euphemism. When it says a tail, it doesn't li- really actually mean a tail. It means, euphemistically speaking, a tail. And what would that be? It means that, you know, everybody's good days and bad days. So there are days when you're on top of your game, you're on, like you're the head, and days when you're on your bottom of the game. You have days when you look good and feel good and days when you don't. So, they maintain that Vashti broke out in all these ugly pimples, really ugly pimples, and suddenly she felt like a tail, not a head. Although the Maharsha says doesn't see a reason to misconstrue the Gemara from its literal meaning. The Gemara says a tail. All right, it's a tail. It this is all miraculous anyway. So what's the difference? I guess you know uh, this could be like kind of the range of miraculous. How miraculous do you want this to be? <laughs> how 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 outlandish do you, do you want the Gemara to sound? At, at any rate, you know. It's all all part of our our oral tradition. And so, in a word, Vashti doesn't show up, even though in better times for her, she would have loved to show up and razzle-dazzle everybody. Why doesn't she come? Not because of her modesty, but because she looks really ugly. She's not showing herself. How does the king respond? The king has no idea about tsara's pimples or tails. He just knows, she said, absolutely not. The king became exceedingly angry, infuriated. He exploded in anger. Why did he get so angry? So the Gemara asks, Why did he get so angry for? Okay, you made a stupid request. She said no, move on. He became infuriated. He went, he went insane with anger. Why? So here's an interesting teaching from the, from the Vilna Gaon, which is quoted by a number of Mepharshav on the Megillah. It says in the Pasuk, it says, afterwards it says, the king became very angry. And then afterwards it says, but, uh, uh, his anger raged within. So, so the Vilna Gaon says like this. He says, "Achashverosh." Did, was having uh, two kinds of uh, anger, so to speak, that he was dealing with, two kinds of anger management issues. There's, there's the anger, the things he reacted to, and then there's the stuff he didn't want to talk about, the thing he kept inside. And, uh, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not sure exactly how he worked this out with how Hasidus explains anger, but he says like this. He says, when people get angry, what do they tend to do? When they get ang- really angry. Get red, and what else you do? People lash out, they scream, they yell, they explode. And the common knowledge, or common wisdom, is that if you blow off the steam, then the anger passes. So people think it's actually good to yell and scream. And, and then there was a st- study done in Princeton University, I think, uh, about twenty-five years ago, that says even yelling and screaming in your head helps. Helps uh, helps you f- kind of. and then there's another kind of anger when you, you're ashamed to talk about it, so you have to keep it inside. When you anger, you're angry, you seethe, but the, the seething is it has no outlet, so it's burning inside you, but you can't express it. So you're going to see that there was two issues actually. The Gobind is going to say with Vashti. On one hand, Vashti publicly refused the king's request, so the king was angry. What do you mean no? I mean, no, I'm the king, can't say no. But she also sent him a little text message or something like it, and nobody else saw. And the text message was a personal attack on his character. But she's actually right about his drunkenness and not being able to hold his liquor. And he couldn't talk about that because he just got the text message. You want to tell everybody what his WhatsApp flashed, you know, his Blackberry got a message. So he had to just keep that anger inside. And that's why he was angry on two levels. There was anger that he expressed and anger that was seething inside but he was ashamed to tell anybody of what she said because she was actually right. Now, since we're on the subject of anger and since we're talking about blowing off steam, I should tell you that it's pretty clear in Chasidus and modern psychology of the last 20 years for sure backs this up that when you get angry the dumbest thing you can do is yell and scream because in the words of Chasidus, words Words are like vessels, words, words are like vehicles, like conventions. So when you provide these conventions, what do they do? They draw forth. You know, let's use a, an interesting metaphor, there's a f- famous biblical story of the widow, she was actually the widow of the prophet Avadya, and, and she had nothing left, and the debtors came and took away all the money, Avadya had borrowed enormous amounts of money to save the prophets. And because of this, he was awarded a prophecy, and then and then he died, and there was this terrible debt, And the creditors had threatened to take away this poor woman's children, and she came to the Navi, Alicia, and said, to "Alicia, what should I do? I have nothing left, and I don't want to take my children away." So Alicia said, "You have nothing?" She said, "Yeah, I have a, I have a jug of oil." "A oh, very good," says Alicia. "She's go home and gather empty vessels." Empty vessels. It says, al Don't leave empty vessels behind. And then, when the vessels you have all these empty vessels start, she start pouring. And she closes. She does exactly what the prophet says. She brings in empty vessels, fills her house with vessels, bar vessels, and she locks the door. The prophet said, "Pour it." She starts pouring, and she's pouring and pouring and pouring, and and they fill up all the vessels. This is an enormous commodity in, in, in antiquity. Olive oil is a big deal. They keep itself for a very high price. Olive oil at one time was more expensive than wine. And then, and then she desperately looks around and says, anything left? Anything else? And said, everything's full. And as soon as everything's full, the oil stops pouring. That's the story. Beautiful story. It's the Haftorah of Parshat Chayesor, I think. So, Hasidus says that when you leave, when you make vessels, the vessels actually, they draw forth. There's a beautiful maimer from the Alta Eber, the Alta Rebbe explains this entire story in spiritual terminology. He says, they want to come and take my children, children, euphemistically speaking in the lexicon of the mystical teachings of Torah, represent the emotions. So the intellectual powers to be are like the parent figures, Chochmah is, is masculine, that's like the father, and Bina, that's the mother. So you have creativity, a flash of creativity. And then you have the development of the idea, build the idea, expand the idea. This is Chachma and Bina. And when you know a lot about something, and you contemplate it and think a lot about it, what eventually is supposed to happen? Eventually, it's supposed to engender some kind of response. It's supposed to to engender feelings, passion, excitement, exuberance. The more you know about something, the more you're excited about it. If I don't know anything about it, I'm not excited about it. And this is in the terminology of Hasidus when, it, when it, it describes the narrative of the development of avodas Hashem, of our service to God, that initially we learn these mystical concepts, ruminate and contemplate in these mystical concepts. And if we do that properly, it engenders ahavav yirah, which are called the children, the offspring. So, so it's like this: the poor woman is a metaphor for the neshama. And the neshama sends a message to the prophet, I have nothing. I have nothing. I'm like, I'm dried out. all I have is a little bit of passion and that too is being taken away from me. So the prophet responds and he says, what does he say? He says, bring a lot of vessels. Al-Tarab says, you know what the vessels are? The vessels are action, mitzvahs. So when a Jew says that he or she doesn't feel a passion for Judaism, they don't feel a fervor for Judaism, what's the best advice we can give them? Start doing mitzvahs. Because the more mitzvahs you do, doing mitzvahs, has this magical, marvelous, and wondrous way of bringing forth from within the spiritual repository of the metaphoric oil, the energy that's at the core of everybody's neshama. So that's how it is in Avedis Hashem. But Chassidus says this is really how it is in the human condition. So in, in we as people, when we express things, the words become vehicles, and they become self-fulfilling prophecies, if you will. When we act in a certain way, it has a profound influence not only on what's around us, but ultimately has a profound influence on us. So if you get angry and you yell and scream about it, what usually happens? You get even angrier. The more attention you give it, the angrier it gets. It's like, like a demon. The more coal you give it, the more fire you give it, the more, the more passion it has. Now, of course, people will tell you, nah, that it's not true. Because I was angry and I yelled and screamed and yelled and screamed until finally my anger subsided. But actually what happens is you just got tired. (laughs) Everybody will get tired eventually. So what should you do if you feel you're losing your temper, if you're getting really angry? You know what you should do? Take a walk around the block. Because you'll be surprised if you don't give it air, if you don't express it, you'll be surprised how quickly you'll be able to put down the fire. So he, that's why I'm not so sure how the Vilni Gaon's teaching fits with that whole narrative of Chassidus. But at any rate, what, what we could say is that there were two kinds of angers. I'm not sure that the first anger was any less intense or more intense. The, uh, maybe on the contrary. Maybe it was the first anger that he expressed that was like, like a fire. And then, but the point is, he was dealing, he was conflicted. And he was, there were many things that incited and angered him. And one thing that incited and angered him was public humiliation. Achashvash was a bully. Ahasuerus was an arrogant, thin-skinned baby. And he flipped his lid when he was embarrassed and shamed in public. Never mind that he wanted to embarrass and shame his wife. That doesn't mean anything. He was angry. How dare she? He publicly humiliated me. And now, after she publicly humiliated him, she also privately humiliated him, as the Gemara is going to tell us. So the Gemara says, why did he get so angry? What, what, what's, why did why he flip out like that? says, the Gemara... Um, Omar, Rav, Rav said, Sholcholo. She sent him a message, which presumably was not a text message because they didn't have it in those days, but maybe just like a, a private individual came and whispered into his ear or maybe, maybe they dropped a little paper in his lap. And, and this was the message. Bar Ahurayor. Use um, stable boy. Ahur, uh, uh, is a stable boy. Stable boy, the Abba. My father's stable boy, she said. That's what she called him because Ahasuerus was actually, according to most opinions, though not all opinions, well, Ahasuerus was from, from a lowly birth. He came out of nowhere to become a very powerful monarch. He usurped the throne. He was extremely charismatic. He was extremely cunning, extremely clever, and he fought his way to the top. So she called him stable boy, the stable boy of my father. That was like a demeaning thing, stable boy. <laughs> she said, Abba, lekabel alpha khamra shati. My father could drink the equivalent of a thousand men. Veloir ravi, and he didn't get drunk. He could hold his liquor. Vahu gavra, and this guy, which is a demeaning way of saying like, and you, istati khamra you went crazy from your liquor. You became totally foolish and silly and made ridiculous demands, made a fool out of yourself and tried to make a fool out of me. So that's the message she sent him. Now obviously, after he got a message like that, in addition to the public shaming of her refusal, and then he got this text message, so what happened? Miyad immediately, the chamosoi baravoi. The anger burned within as Gros says, it burned within because he, he wasn't going to tell anybody the contents of this thing. Do you even see what she wrote about me? She called me a stable boy. She said I can't own my liquor. She said my father was a real king and I'm an imposter. He wasn't going to tell anybody that. But he was really angry. He, he felt extremely disgraced and demeaned. And so the king now had to figure out what he was going to do. And I mentioned earlier that there are numerous opinions as to whether Belshazzar was actually the father of of Vashti. So even if we say that Belshazzar was not her father, even if we are to say that Belshazzar was her uncle, or maybe even her brother, what we could say is that Vashti was much, much younger. And because she was much younger, so Belshazzar kind of raised her like a child. He may have been 20 or 25 years older, so he was like a father figure. Even if he wasn't actually her father, he was like a father figure, and she was a young girl. So she called him Abba, she called him father," even though he wasn't actually her father. Like I said, according to many opinions, he was, he was actually her father. Now the question, of course, could be asked about this ridiculous text message: Which man can drink the liquor of a thousand men? Forget how much liquor you can hold. Nobody no can absorb that much liquid. If everybody can drink a pint, a quart, a gallon, I don't know, whatever it is, nobody can drink a thousand pints of, 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 of ale. It just doesn't make any sense. Why would she use that kind of euphemism which actually makes no sense? Why would he be offended by it when it doesn't, when it doesn't make any sense? It's a ridiculous statement to make. So, the Taisvesar Rosh says... Don't take it literally. She didn't actually mean that he could drink the amount of liquor that a thousand people would eat. But rather, he says, if a thousand people would drink that much liquor, he'd be at the head of the thousand people. In other words, he'd be in the top point, 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 one percentile. So my dad could really hold his liquor. And if a thousand men, he'd be the soberest. And you are acting like a total fool. Another interpretation is that the word alpha does not mean a thousand. But the word alpha actually means an ox. And that's like we have the expression, shigar the which is the blessings, the blessings that Isaac gave to Jacob. And he speaks about his flocks. And he speaks about his cattle. He speaks about the sheep. So an, an alpha could be alpha. And what is the point? He says, "My father could have drunk like a horse and still not be drunk." That's what we say it in English, but in Hebrew or in Persian, it was he. He could have drank as much as an ox. People say, "I'm, you know, I'm uh, strong as an ox, drunk as a fish." I don't know. You know people use expressions. So this is the idea, like <laughs> he, he, could, he, could, he could he could he could drink like a horse, drink like an ox, and still wouldn't get drunk. When people say, you know the Somebody had enough poison to, you know, to, to, kill a, to kill a horse, but it didn't do anything to this guy. So this was either way, it was certainly she was trying to embarrass him and basically say to him, you can't hold your liquor. And in the ancient world, not being able to hold your liquor or being told you can't hold your liquor was the ultimate embarrassment. It was like shaming his masculinity. What kind of man are you? Can't hold your wine. This is how they would measure their bravado and machoism. Who could drink more wine and still be left standing? Have heard the expression, he can drink you under the table. Ahasuerus is supposed to be the king. He's supposed to be able to drink everybody under the table. But actually, <laughs> he was the one who was totally off kilter and nuts in the head. Now, by the way, all up until this point, Ahasuerus, as we learned previously in the Gemara, had been getting everybody else drunk, but very, very cleverly did not drink himself. It was only on the last day he said, okay, now it's my turn. I spent enough time Being Mr. Politically correct, enough time worrying about being diplomatic and taking care of everybody else, I gotta have some fun too. And fun he had. It it was not a happy ending. So the anger burned. Now, what I'm gonna tell you now, my friends, you never heard this before. You heard the Megillah maybe since your childhood. You know the words I'm gonna share with you. You never heard this. And we're gonna talk about why you never heard it and how it's possible for it to be true if the Megillah doesn't really say it. But it also shows you the kind of impossible position that the jewish people have always been put in you ever hear what they call in english a no-win situation Achashverosh now is looking for advice who does he call he may be drunk but he still needs advice or as the mafarshim say he still had to go through due process even though he was a king he's political capital and Vashti was very popular. And, you know, if he spends all the political capital and makes the populace angry, it's not going to work. Achashveresh wanted somebody else to say it. You say what to do. I'm just going to follow the law. I'm a law-abiding citizen. So the next piece of the Miguel says, The king said to the wise men, who are these wise men? So before we go further in the Gemara, who are these wise men? Huh? His advisors. his advisors who are his advisors his people his cabinet yeah. right wrong no wrong that's what that's what everybody thinks now I'm going to show you how in the Megillah it's alluded to that no it's not really his, his advisors the Chachamim says the Gemara were none other than Rabbonan. he crawled a group of rabbis together this is a no-win situation because whatever the rabbis are going to say, it will be held against them. What a brilliant move. What a brilliant, brilliant move. You think Achshresh was a fool? Nobody's fool. He said, Well, blame the Jews. If everybody gets angry, it's the Jews' fault. It's perfect. The perfect storm, the perfect scapegoat. In his drunken stupor, in his anger, in his infuriation, the man was clever as a fox. Rabbonon. Who are the Chachamim, says the Gemara? The rabbis. How do we know this? Who says? Anybody could be wise. Wise men could be... Every civilization can have wise men. Every country can have wise men. How do you know Chachamim? Chachamim is just a Hebrew word for wise men. How do you know it means the rabbis? Says the Gemara, I'll tell you how I know. Because whilst the word Chachamim is generally used for many, many forms of wisdom... Confucius was a chokum, Aristotle was a Chokum, in fact Rambam calls Aristotle ha Hagod, the great wise man. So the word wise, wise, wise people, you can use wise people in any context, not only in Torah wisdom. However, the next words of the Gemara Vayemula Khachamim yoidei Hoitim, the knowers of time. Who's that? What does it mean? The wise men, knowers of time? So the Gemara says, the knowers of time means, they know how to, I'll translate this literally and then explain it, make years pregnant. And they know how to establish months. Now what this means, my dear friends, is as follows. These were the people who knew how to create a perfectly balanced calendar. You see, Time is told by virtue of the heavenly bodies. That's how we tell time. We tell day and night by the daily rising and setting or orbit of the sun. And when the sun moves away from our horizon, the sky becomes transparent and what do we suddenly see? The moon. And if you want to know, the moon actually rises too. The moon also rises and sets. Only it's not as famous. It's not as Uh, shall we say, colorful or dramatic as the sun's rising and setting. So that's how we know days. And the, the orbit of sun and moon is always 24 hours long. Exactly 24 hours. It never has changed. It's always 24 hours anywhere in the world. What does change is the percentage of day and night. So in certain parts of the world, Like the two poles, we see, and from a Torah perspective, we see the world spinning on its axis, not like this, rather like this. We see Yerushalayim as the top of the ball. That's the top of the world. So the world spins on its two sides, which is called the North Pole and the South Pole. So North Pole and South Pole, which you have a round ball, so if the sun is here, there's going to be a difference where the sun feels on the top of the the globe and the way it feels much further away because these parts are much further away from the globe. It also makes a difference in how much sunlight or how little sunlight you get. So in, in the areas on the northern and southern extremities of planet Earth, you will have months where you'll have almost virtually nothing but night. And months where you have virtually nothing but day. And, and it moves, like it's not the same. In the, in the equatorial area, it's not exactly the same as it is, for example, us, we the true north in Canada. It changes. North, south, it changes. There are always, somewhere in the spring, in most normal places, a perfect balance of exactly 12 hours of day and 12 hours of night. The spring equinox, winter, winter, winter solstice or something like that, there's a time, just, just what, what's exact, and that's when 12 and 12 hours. Otherwise, now, our days are fairly short and our nights are fairly long. And there are places in the world where it's even shorter. If you keep going north you'll find that the day is even shorter. Incidentally, we have something called sha'od zmaniyot, which means timely hours. And that is that since the day and the night are divided into 60-minute hours, 12 increments of those 60-minute hours, because that's the case. So we will always have 12 increments, even though in, now and in at present, the sha'od zmani here in Canada during the day is less than 45 minutes, 44 minutes, something like that. Because you take the day from sunrise to sunset and you divide it into 12 equal parts, you're not going to get 12 hours. And at night, you're not going to get 60 minutes. You're going to get longer. 70-something minutes. You follow what I'm saying? That's how the halachic times change. That's why there are times when Shema has to be finished by a certain time. When is midday? When is the setting of the sun? When is Shkia? When is Plag These are all halachic terminologies of day. That's with regard to hours. So hours, the hours actually work right. You don't need to be a genius. You don't have, you don't, there's, no, there's no difficulty in knowing when days begin and end. However, where we do have difficulty now is in the full orbit of the sun and the moon. So the moon is making these little orbits. Little orbits. Eventually it makes a full orbit around the earth. It's making little orbits. And the sun is also constantly spinning. Earth is constantly spinning. All the heavenly bodies are constantly spinning. And what happens is that the lunar cycle is 29 days and just shy of 12 hours. Which is a problem. What's the problem? How long should a month be? How long should a month be? 29 days? If you have a month of 29 days, you're going to have a half a day that's unaccounted for. So if you have a month that's only 29 days and you're following a lunar calendar, what will happen after another 29 days? Your month's going to be in the wrong place, which is how the Gregorian calendar works. We don't really care about that. So the full moon shows up all over the place. Why? Because we took the solar calendar, which is 365 days and almost a half a day, also half a day. And we said, okay, we're going to divide this up, which is February gets 28 days and some months get 29 days and some months get 31 days. And we have this whole thing of borrowing and adding and subtracting, and the months are just artificial. Now, really, months are supposed to be a lunar thing. That's how he came up with this idea of, of a 30-day month. Approximately 30 days, because that's the lunar orbit. The Gregorian calendar is really not much more than 2,000 years old. And it already needed a major overhaul. That's why the Greek Orthodox, and Russian Orthodox, they celebrate their December holidays in January. January 6th. Because at some point, the calculations didn't work. So they did what they do in Canada when you want to have a new, a new year now. So the Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, said, we're Orthodox. We don't change anything. We don't care if it doesn't make sense. They said, it's got to make sense. Our calendar, our calendar is not as old. Here's the interesting thing. In Besan Migdash times, our calendar was dynamic. Which meant, you didn't get a calendar in the mail a few weeks before Rosh Hashanah. Well, what would happen is witnesses would have to see the new moon, they would have to come to the Bezdin. They would say to the Bezdin, We saw the new moon, and the Bezdin would have to interrogate them. Now, this is the Sanhedrin, this is the High Court of the Jewish people. So these people knew exactly when the moon would appear or wouldn't appear. They knew where in the sky it would appear, they knew what the points of the moon would look like, and they had a tremendous tremendous amount of astronomical knowledge, and they knew how to balance the solar year or the solar seat, the seasonal year, with the lunar year. And this is a Jewish art and has remained a Jewish art. In, in the Christian world, they follow a seasonal calendar, a solar calendar. In the Muslim world, they follow a lunar calendar, they don't have seasonal years, or the Chinese calendar is lunar. Every civilization in the world has taken either one or the other? Only one civilization, if you want to call us that, has necessarily balanced both has lunar months and solar or seasonal years. Who are those people? Us. Us. So that was the big challenge of the Sanhedrin, to make that work. And they worked really hard at making it work. They had tremendous knowledge. And because of this, they were known as Yoidei, Itim, the knowers of time. Do you understand? That was a uniquely Jewish art. So this uniquely Jewish art of knowing time, that's who Ahashverosh tapped. Why did he tap them? Because they're wise men. Because they were people who once sat on the Supreme Court of a powerful nation named Israel, or then it was maybe called Judea. And this Supreme Court would deal with matters of life and death. It's a criminal court. So he went to a group of people who were skilled judges, who knew how to deal with matters of monarchy and rebellion, who could who could adjudicate, who could legislate, who could rule on matters of life and death. And it's a brilliant move. Because if the populace rebels and if people are angry, who does Akhvare blame it on? The Jews. And if it works well, who cares about the Jews? I'm the smart guy. I knew who to ask. So we were going to lose. She yedim lehu, he said to the hem, Dainali, I need you now to judge for me. So Dainuha, Dainuha, judge her. What should I do? Omri, the sages, who were a lot wiser than Achashver's thought, said like this: Hechinavad, what are we going to do here? Name Katle, if we tell him, kill her. She violated the law. What will happen tomorrow? Lamas Tomorrow the wine wears off, says Rashi, ma alov, and maybe have a hangover, but he won't be nearly as drunk, and he's gonna come back to his senses. And then, Ubay La and what's gonna happen? He's gonna he's gonna he's gonna blame it on us. Blame it on us be angry at us. You did this. You made the problems. So, what should we say? Name a shavka if we say, leave her. Leave her. You know. She doesn't always have to listen to everything you say. I understand. She humiliated you. She sent you an angry text message. Okay. <laughs> this is so up. In that case, kamizazelobu marhusa. Achashverosh will accuse them of demeaning and disgracing Monarchy, royalty. And people will say later, why was nothing done? The crown was shamed in public. Why was nothing done? And they'll say, oh, it's the Jews. The Jews messed things up. It's the Jewish court that demeaned and destroyed the power of monarchy. It's the Jewish court that has demoted the the throne of this country. So what are they going to do? This is the original no-win situation. Whatever the sages say will be held against them. What would you do? On the spot. When an angry king is looking at you and demanding an answer. The answer is you've got to find a way out. Um, Amr They very wisely responded. And they said, Your Royal Highness, from the day that our Holy Temple was destroyed, we were exiled from our land. Nitla Our wisdom has been taken from us. We can't think clearly. I don't know what to say. We have become confounded. Our minds aren't working. Imagine a statement like that. 70 years almost after the Beis Amigdash's destruction. That means to be connected to a Beis Amigdash. That's how close Yerushalayim has to be in our hearts. 70 years later we still can't think straight. And from the fact that they could make this argument to Achashverosh and say, 70 years later, we still can't figure things out. We're still in a state of confusion. And for the fact that even that they could make such an argument, and the fact that Achashverosh might accept such an argument, speaks volumes about the link, the connection, and the bond that our rabbis, our sages fell for, Yerushalayim and the Beis HaMikdash. 70 years later, we're still traumatized. So he said, We don't have the wisdom to deal with criminal matters, to decide on matters of life and death. They said, so brilliantly, "Zil Go to our neighbors. See, clearly you don't want to use your own court. You don't want to use your own people. I understand. You went to a foreign court. It makes sense. It's another brilliant move. So the Jewish people said, Go to our neighbors. Our neighbors from the Middle East, who are our neighbors? Amon and Moav. Amon and Moav, they said. And according to some opinions, it's really only Moav, not Amon. The Yasvi Biduchtayu, they have been sitting in their place, Kichamra the Yosef aldurdaya, Like wine that has sat upon its sediment. You know, you take wine, you leave it in the oak cask, and it gets better and better, and it gets, the flavor gets richer and deeper. So this, 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 they still have their wits about them. The Taima amrulei. the Gemara says, and according to some opinions, they said this themselves, or according to other opinions, the Gemara says this was an extremely wise thing to say. Why? Because there's actually a scripture, there's a verse in the book of Jeremiah that says, the chsiv, the verse says, mo'yav Moab has been peaceful, serene, complacent from its youth. They were undisturbed. Nobody bothered the Moabites. The Jews, that was another story. The Moabites were left alone. They had no trauma. They had no disruption. And because of that, they have remained sitting, so to speak, steeped on their sediment. They weren't emptied. So because that's the case, uh, they never went in Golos. They never went into exile. They were never sent away from home. Because of that, they have the wits about them. Alcain, They said, therefore, they have their wits about them. They have maintained their rhyme and reason, their aroma, their taste. And that's why you should go to Ammon and Moav. Very interestingly, Ahasuerus does not go to Moav. Why? Because he wasn't really looking for a foreign government. Who was he looking for? He was looking for the (laughs) Jews. This was a good way to blame the Jews. But the Jews outfoxed him. And they said... We'd love to help you, but this is above our pay grade. We can't do this. Ah, we can't do this. So in that case, Ahasuerus has no choice but to turn to his own bad advisors. And this, my dear friends, we will, Bezrat Hashem, continue next week.